Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name is Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. On today's episode, I want to welcome Associate Professor Dr. Craig Ascend, who has been a Senior Lecturer at the Department of General Practice since 1989. Craig is the Coordinator of Mindfulness Programs at Monash University and has been instrumental in introducing a variety of innovations into medical education and practice in Australia and overseas. His teaching, research and clinical interests include mindfulness-based stress management, mind-body medicine, meditation, health promotion, integrative medicine and medical ethics. Craig was the founding president of the Australian Teachers of Meditation Association, writes regularly for medical journals and has published 10 books. This was one of the first recorded episodes of Move Your Mind, and we just want to let you know that the team are working incredibly hard behind the scenes to improve audio quality and create the best possible experience for each and every one of you. I really wanted to have a chat to you today just about the work you do and the huge application of it, because I think right now, more than ever, what you do is, it's critical, really. I mean, it's critical in everyday life, but it is more important than ever right now and it's a message that people need to know and I think any little guidance or advice that we can give them, the better. First up, I just wanted to ask you, how did you actually come to being in the position that you are in today doing what you do? Well, I came to it very much from personal experience. I've taught myself what I would now call mindfulness in you know, my teenage years, dealing with the pressures of you know, preparing for exams and you know, a lot of competitive sport that I used to, to do in those days and get very nervous and anxious in the lead up to events. And I, I kind of discovered that if you don't stay present, if you don't stay grounded, if you let your mind fly off anywhere and everywhere, you could just go into a world of pain very easily. And all of a sudden you're fighting with the phantoms of your imagination and out of touch with what's in front of you and what you can do and what you can respond to. So I, I kind of realized that for myself. And I could see the effect that what I fed my attention to in my mind had profound effects on my body. So that mind-body relationship, the importance of being present and so on, was, I suppose for myself, was a no-brainer. And um, so I came to it from that. And then when I, I went into medicine because I had an interest in the mind, but I wound up not doing psychiatry because there was a little bit too much focus on drugs and not the mind. So I kind of maintained that interest and I came to it, I suppose, through general practice, through counselling, stress management. Um, you know, after I graduated, I realised this is the sort of thing that needs to be in medical education. Doctors aren't taught anything about it and they need to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got involved teaching at Monash University in 1989 and, um, and things have just taken off enormously since then. They they have. I mean, looking at your resume, you've you've written ten books. As you know, just amongst everything else you've done, just a lazy ten books. Um, there's a lot of things, and I'll go into that a little bit more as well. But what you were saying before leads to another question I had, which you were talk you talk a lot about mind body medicine, and um, I guess mindfulness as an application in practical, almost scientific sort of a scientific manner. 
And I think a lot of people, when they look at meditation and mindfulness, they think of it as being more spiritual or, you know, non-tangible thing that they can't seem to wrap their head around. And I think that's a really interesting thing and an important message for to understand. So, yeah, could you sort of tell me a bit more about that? Well, look, these practices, meditative, contemplative practices, have been around for thousands of years, and they're pretty much at the heart of all the world's great wisdom traditions. And people came to it because of what it provided in terms of self-discovery, in terms of knowing ourselves better and knowing a connectedness to something bigger than ourselves. So I suppose in a way it was a, it was a kind of a spiritual practice uh, and very profound. And I suppose if you went into all those ancient texts, they talk about the relief of suffering and transcendence and all that sort of thing. Well, we have different language these days. We talk about stress and we talk about depression and mental health problems. Well, that's suffering. <laughs> Yeah, We have a different language for it. Well, people are coming to it because, well, how am I going to deal with the workload and pressures and time um, management? And, or I'm trying to cope with a chronic illness. You know, what's going to help me to cope better with having cancer? Or can I do something to boost my immunity? I've got an autoimmune condition. Can I help to switch off the inflammatory process? So the majority of people these days may not use those philosophical terms, but are coming to these practices for a basic need. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things that's happening in the world today is that we're living such a distracted life. And not because technology is bad, because here we are, we're using it in a very constructive way now, but um, the misuse and overuse of technology can lead people to having very distracted lives these days. So for various reasons, people are coming to it for pragmatic reasons in their everyday life. I need some help with this. And so these philosophical, spiritual practices, if you like, have very practical applications, but the language is different. And the amount of research now is just going off the scale. Um, so if you went back about 20 years, there were, I think, five new papers on mindfulness published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, I think, in 1998. Um, last year, there was 1,449 new papers published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, just last year alone. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's this exponential growth of the level of interest in mindfulness and the amount of research activity. You know, if you went back thousands of years, people didn't have randomized controlled trials or anything. They, the laboratory they had was their own mind and body. That's where they did the research. And uh, these days we have the scientific method, which just pretty much confirms what people knew a very long time ago. So I think mm. the modern world's been very slow to catch up. <laughs> as much as yeah. we think we're ahead of the curve, we've mm. been very slow to catch up. And I think it's a very human thing for people to want um, that tangible sort of proof, isn't it? Which I think it's pretty courageous um, of you. You know, you've jumped into this before this was a thing, before um, probably anyone knew what the word meant. Uh, you were willing to go and explore it because of your own curiosity and wanting to, you know, help people in that area. But it is that commonality for most of us where we're wanting to have actual proof of something and, you know, see it in that way. And another thing you were saying before made me think, uh, I think it's fantastic that it is widespread now. There's more research. There's people like yourself that are educating about it and people are able to use it when they need it, whether it's for sickness or dealing with an issue. But it needs to go that one step further, which it's starting to happen where people actually start using this when they don't need it in a reactive sense more just to improve our life because 
on top of all the other, you know, great applications of helping us deal with adversity, we can get more out of life. We can create um, just daily habits and clarity of thought. And uh, actually, I want you, want to ask you about that. You can, you can tell me better. I'm not going to tell you. As far as I understand, there's a lot of good applications of it. But I think it's a really important thing, that proactive rather than reactive stance on, on mindfulness and, and this area. I mean, if if we're dealing with recurrent depression, major chronic pain, the, the, the kind of physical, emotional pain will drive us to very often to look deeper, to want to understand things more deeply. But if adversity is used well, rather than just numbing ourselves to it, trying to pretend it's not there, to deny it, if we use it well, we turn towards it and then it teaches us about ourselves. And those lessons aren't always easy to learn, but we learn something about ourselves. And then we're actually improved by the adversity. We come out the other end better for it. If we turn away from it, just want to numb ourselves to it, ignore it, um, distort it, then um, or just wallow in it, then we feel worse and worse for it. We often establish some pretty unhelpful habits for how we deal with adversity. And so there's that, that pain and suffering that turns people towards it. But as well, how's mindfulness going to, is it just going to lift us out of depression to feel okay? Or can mindfulness um, and meditation more generally teach us some very profound things? Can it make life richer? Can it help us to be more creative, mm-hmm. to create the, free up a little bit of bandwidth in our, <laughs> our heads to be able to, um, to really engage in creative processes? Uh, how does it help us to communicate better, to engage better? Because many people these days communicating through very small screens nearly all of the time. And that the actual interaction with others has been replaced by something artificial. So how's mindfulness going to help us to connect better with people, to communicate, to actually, and there's a whole field of research well as well about how mindfulness helps people to be more compassionate, caring mm-hmm. to others more empathic, um, how it's associated with being more pro-social, that is interested in the well-being of others. And there's such a desperate need for these things in the world today. And so mindfulness, I think, is being discovered for other reasons. You know, if, we, <clears throat> if it takes being whacked over the back of the head to wake us up, you know, by major adversity, then so be it. I know how that, that's felt myself, you know. It's, um, but much better to wake up without having to have that kind of adversity. But just because it's a profoundly important thing to do in our life. Um, I've got questions that I want to get into soon about the current situation with the coronavirus. And I guess, you know, that is a very, um, you know, major widespread issue that we're all facing. And, you know, it's it's um, something where we need to learn about what you're talking about. But I think from what you were saying as well before, um, so it's almost impossible to be creative, to think outside of the box when our mind is so full all the time. Um, I pursue acting and I also do my work in mental health and it's always a, a balance of trying to not get so consumed in more the logical part of the brain and overloading myself and I find it happening a lot of the time because the demands are there and it's really hard to switch off. I've got a phone in my hand 24-7, computer, there's never-ending forms of communication and things to do and I've really noticed uh, profoundly with my acting, when I haven't managed that, my performance will just drop dramatically. But probably more importantly than that, just the actual enjoyment 
of why I did it in the first place, that pure joy of the same as I'm sure when you're, you know, immersed in the moment or you're really present and not thinking about the past or future, just that feeling of pure joy about just doing something for the sake of doing it gets taken away. So, yeah, I can remember one uh, interesting and important experiences in my life, you know, when I was graduated from medicine and you step into your first year as a, as a junior doctor. So you had your 10, 12 hour days every day, Monday to Friday, but if you had a weekend on as well, um, for my roster, it was from early on Saturday morning, so about 7 a.m. through to 11 p.m. on Monday night. And that was with no sleep. That's no break. Flat chat. One thing after another. One sick patient after another. One call after another. One admission after another. So just flat chat, 64 hours. And for some reason, I thought to myself when I was going into my first weekend on, because people used to talk about them, you know, you just how awful it was and how feeling dead at the end. And then you've got to turn up, of course, the first thing the next morning for your normal day's work anyway. And I thought to myself, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm, I'm going to see what, what's possible. I'm going to conserve every molecule of energy. So what's that going to mean? I'm just going to pay attention to one thing at a time. Whatever patient's in front of me, whatever task I'm doing, whatever procedure I'm doing, just that one thing at a time and conserve every molecule of energy. No reactivity, no frustration, no resistance, just, just flow with events as they happen. Priority one, priority two, and just move through the day, through the night, through the day, through the night, through the day, <laughs> and into the next night. And part of that was the simple moments, like that mental load that we experience. So I, part of that for me, was, you know, if I'd finished seeing one sick patient in one ward and I had a two-minute walk to another part of the hospital to a different ward, there was either an opportunity for two minutes of worry and rumination and why, I've met, why am I even doing this career, etc., or it was just a two-minute opportunity for some mental rest. Just walk. That's all that's happening there. Just walk. And so I just walk. I just feel the rhythm of the body. If I pass somebody in the corridor, hello, and... But what I found was I stepped into the next activity with a calmer, more attentive state of mind, ready now to really listen to the next patient who is experiencing some symptoms or to speak to a nurse or, you know, staff member is, uh, is wanting to report something. So it was just a matter of giving myself mental rest in simple moments in the day. You see, what happens these days is those simple moments in life are being filled up. We're either filled up with worry and rumination about how much we've got to do and will I get through it or what if I do or don't reach the deadline. Or these days the technology, if it's not used well, is filling up every single moment because walking down the corridor on automatic pilot while checking a few other things. And so the mind is never having that free air, that, that mm. sort of space. And it, it increases a kind of a mental load, a cognitive load, and that can really burn out our brains by, by the end of the day let alone the end of the week, the month, the year. And it's an awful feeling. And um, I've noticed with myself, you know, I've got a very active mind. And even when it's not overloaded with all of the distractions that are available to us and so hard to get away from, I, I found myself ruminating at times over the most just... I look back and I just laugh about it. I mean, I, I can't think of an exact example. One Here's one example. I, I remember maybe um, about six months ago, I had a, a massive audition. I'm based over in Vancouver at the moment and um, I was over there, had this big audition and I had a haircut the night before 
and I felt like I cut it too short and I played out this whole scenario. I'd put so much preparation into this audition and I was lying in bed thinking, if I just cut my hair this, if it wasn't cut so short, I would have probably, I'll probably get the job. And I psyched myself into the fact that I'm going to lose this job because I've cut my hair too short. I'm not going to have the right look they want and I'm out of the game. And I, I spent, I reckon, three hours. <laughs> three hours in thought over that. <laughs> This could have been the start of something big in my career <laughs> shot because I cut my hair just a few mils too short. It's unbelievable. But, you know, and I've, there's so many examples, I'm sure, for all of us. I, can think, I, I can't think off the top of my head right now, but I've got countless, you know, times that's happened and it's just insane. And, I mean, I meditate every day and do other things, but I've started also doing breathing exercises and I found it really helpful. Any time I find my mind wandering now, I'll just go and straight away sit there, do deep breathing, um, like belly breathing, and I find instantly it will take me out of it and you just move on. You just don't allow that. It's it's sort of the thought will get turned into a bigger and bigger and worse thing if you don't catch it in its tracks right there. This is one of the things that many people <clears throat> perhaps don't do. Um, in terms of learning and practicing meditation is to, in a sense, take it off the chair or off the cushion and into day-to-day life. So that presence and attentiveness that you cultivate during your meditation practice, you know, sitting there and, you know, whether you're using the breathing or the body or a mantra or something else, if people are practicing other forms of meditation, but that attentiveness, that presence, that non-reactivity to the passing thoughts and feelings, etc that sort of gentleness with which we're present is to take it off the chair and back into our life. So that when we're washing the dishes, we're just washing the dishes. Mm. It's not washing the dishes on automatic pilot while we're thinking about the thousand things we've got to do after, you know, we've done the dishes. Now walking down the street is just walking down the street, eating our food, just the simple pleasure of tasting the food. And so that in a sense, it's about living mindfully. And if we do that, then the benefits of the practice we do during the meditation start to ripple right out into the whole of the day. Mm, and that mm. starts to change the way that we are in the world. You know, so there's, mm. there we are at, that, at, at work, something happens, we get a, our buttons are pressed, a little flare up of anger arises. <clears throat> but if we're mindful, there's the opportunity to notice it in the present moment, to stand back from it, not be caught up in it, not even mm. thinking it shouldn't be there, but we're not controlled by the anger. You know, we're, in a sense, not trying to control it, we're just not controlled by it. And that little window of opportunity for a more discerning response in that situation arises. So it's that living mindfully that makes the difference, not just 5, 10, 20 minutes, 30 minutes sitting in the chair like that. That's the starting point. It's like the training court. The the centre court is life. (laughs) Yeah. Training court is, is what we do when we practice our meditation practice. Mental health and well-being are real issues in the construction industry. Men in construction are twice as likely to take their own life compared to the ones who work in other industries. And that's just not good enough. With John Holland's help, we want to make a change. We've joined together to have honest conversations about mental health, life, and stories of people who have overcome challenges. When we hear about stories and struggles that sound a bit like ours, we can learn from each other and remember that we're not alone. A lot of the things you're saying, you're sort of answering a lot of the questions I sort of have planned for you, but there's so so many tangents I could go on here. But yeah, I mean, like what you're saying as well, I like to th- sort of think about it in the sense that the same way that when a negative thought comes in and it can turn, if we 
ruminate on it, it'll become this bigger and bigger thing. It compounds in the same way, in a positive way. If we do things that are healthy for us, if we stay present, that all compounds into you becoming in a much more clear mindset and, you know, better, having a better standpoint on life. Um, uh-huh. Bless you. Right, I haven't got COVID-19. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Um, that's what I'm sort of leading into next. You know, I wanted to sort of talk to you about that. I, I guess the other question I had before I go into that, which I think you've actually answered, but you do and you have done so many things. Like I said before, you've written 10 books, you you lecture at Monash University, you help write the mindfulness programs there, you speak all over the world, um, you, you're a regular commentator on the work you do amongst so many other things. I mean, every day must bring on so many different demands and there must be uncertainty with what's going to happen the next day when there are so many different aspects to what you do. Like, Do you ever find yourself getting overwhelmed with that or how do you... It, it sort of comes back to the things I was mentioning before about one thing at a time. Yeah. One step at a time, one job at a time. I mean, I don't mind opening up my diary and seeing that no two days are the same. Yeah. But in a sense, if we're doing one thing, but we're thinking about the other thousand we've still got to do, then the one thing's not getting the attention it deserves. And we're creating a kind of mental pressure and stress. It's like running a marathon, you know, and, and I've, I've run a few marathons and... Um, oh, amazing. And, you know, when you, you step out and if you step out and you think, oh, 42,000 steps, you know, well, let's say you're 30 kilometres into it, another 12,000 steps. <laughs> That's like getting a, a heavy pack and putting it on your back and running with that, with the mental load that we create. And I can remember, you know, the first marathon I did and so many people say, oh, the last five kilometres, that's when it really hurts. Oh, you know, it's like we turned around this corner and we pretty much had five kilometres to go. And as soon as I turned that, I kind of, oh, it's five kilometres to go. Oh, it's really hurting. It was like pressing play button on a story that my mind started telling myself. And um, what I noticed was that all of a sudden my attention had gone off the present moment and I was thinking about the future. Will I make it? Won't I make it? Mm -hmm. And when I realised what was happening, I thought, wait a sec, just come back to just one step at a time. It's no more demanding than just this one step now. Mm. So as soon as I came back, well, that step was manageable. That one was all right. That's okay. That's pretty simple. You know, each step was very manageable. And as soon as I did that, it was like taking off this massive pack off my back and it took the load off. And I'll get there when I get there. But um, all of a sudden it became a lot easier. And there's a term given for this mental commentary, judging, criticizing. It's called default mode. But it's pretty much the mode of mind we go into when we're not mindful. So it's a distracted mode of mind when we're talking to ourselves, catastrophizing, you know, like the example you were giving before. That's <laughs> called default mode. And there's a lot of default mental activity in states like anxiety and, and, and depression and stress and so on. We give it names like worry, rumination, catastrophizing. And so it's enough to deal with what is, but boy, the mind can come up with a lot of what if, but what is, is enough. And so mindfulness is not a way of avoiding the challenges and the things that are presenting themselves to us, but it, it does help us to just deal with that without mm. the extra burden that we place on ourselves from this internal dialogue and criticizing and judging. 
I mean, there's no end to it, really, unless we do learn to deal with it. That's what I realised when it's, you know, the thinking of I'll only be okay when this happens or when I have this or when I accumulate this or when I'm more successful than this person. And as long as you have that kind of thinking, you're literally never going to find peace or, you know, be comfortable because you could become the most prominent person in the world or in your field and that still won't be enough. Like it'll, there'll always need to be something else. And that, that's really, for me, when I really realized that, that was sort of very liberating because it just meant, okay, I can actually give myself permission to just enjoy what I'm doing right now. Cause it doesn't really matter what the outcome is anyway. You know, if you're doing it from the right place, it's like, we can't control much else, you know, just allow yourself to enjoy the process, which it leads to, you know, I want to ask you sort of leads into talking about what's happening in the world at the moment. Um, you've answered a lot of the techniques and I guess I maybe want to get a few small specific things that we can, that you know, what we can do to manage it. But what I've really noticed myself is I've in general been okay um, dealing with what's happening because I have, I guess, the last 10 years been working on myself and dealing with uncertainty and becoming okay with it. And I've found myself to be okay in general, but the times that I do get a bit stressed is when you just continually hear people saying, no, but it's going to be, you know, that fear driving, this is going to happen and this. And I keep saying, well, it might, it might not. I know what the um, we're being told we should do right now and I'm being responsible and I can only deal with that. So I'm just going to take it one day at a time. But people, it's so hard not to get caught up in it. So yeah, what would what would your advice be on, you know, what people can do right now to deal with what's going on? Well, I think something far more contagious than COVID-19 at the moment is fear and anxiety. Yeah. That is incredibly contagious. <clears throat> it passes very quickly and it doesn't just pass from one person next to you to yourself. It passes via media and social media and so on. Now, this is not an argument about, you know, by all means, be informed, stay in touch. The, the fear and anxiety uh, can be very contagious and way out of proportion to the actual risk. This is not the black death. So how will how something like mindfulness help? Well, the first thing is anything we do to improve our mental, emotional health, to remove this switch down, this overactivation of the stress response has one effect, side effect, and it's a very good one, of boosting our immunity. So we're less likely to get sick if we're exposed to something. If, if we do get sick, it's less likely to be severe because our resistance is better and more likely to recover better. So that's one good thing for a start. And anything else you do to improve your health, eat well, get some exercise, get a bit of sunlight, you know, all of these things are actually the helpful for our immunity. But mindfulness also can help in lots of other ways, like perception. Like you were saying before, when your mind was catastrophizing, you were perceiving stressors that weren't even there, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. blowing things out of all perspective and proportion. So we do need to see a situation for what it is. Now, this is, of course, a good time to take all the appropriate measures to reduce your risk of transmission and so on. So let's not argue against that um, for, mm-hmm. for a moment. But the actual risk and the perceived risk can be two very different things. So, for example, you know, when we're, don't bat an eyelid over getting into a car, but many people are very, very afraid getting onto a plane. Now, travelling on a plane is about as safe as travel can be. Far orders of magnitude more safe than driving in cars. 
And yet we don't take, we take one thing very lightly, very blasé, and we take the other thing out of all perspective and proportion, you know, flying. And, and if, for example, the reporting of, uh, so there's uh, about 16 million people who die every year from having heart attacks, which are largely lifestyle-related illnesses. Now, if we're reporting the number of heart attacks that are happening in the world every day, there'd be tens of thousands happening every day. If we're reporting that the way that COVID-19 is being reported, we would be in a constant state of panic. And, and mind you, that's not the only thing that people are dying from, you know, mm-hmm. about 11 million people die every year from just eating a poor diet. Yeah, from from suicide, you know, one one person, uh, roughly one person every 40 seconds commits suicide around the world. I mean, there's so many different things. And it's like you're saying, it's not to take, not not to discredit what's happening, not to take it any less seriously, but it's putting things in perspective. Yeah, so a young person gets COVID-19, you know, the, it's one in 10,000 chance of dying from it. Um, it's very, very, very low risk. Now, there are some people with chronic illnesses and older and so on for whom the risk goes up. But even for them, even if they get it, the chances are they wouldn't die from it anyway. But, um, mm. but the risk certainly does go up older and more chronic illness. So that's the first thing is trying to get things in perspective. Actually look at the data free of so much of the emotional flurry that's going around it. And, and still respond to the situation, to be able to ride those emotional waves without getting caught in them. So mindfulness can teach us about detachment. Detachment, not ignoring something's there, but not being caught up in the fears, the reactions. So learning to be more comfortable with discomfort, the acceptance, the sort of gentleness with which we notice you know, the anxieties there, the fears are there, but not being controlled by it necessarily. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the other things is staying present in the present moment, because the mind can certainly project into a future, and the mind can, its projection into the future can be very bleak, but we don't know what the future is going to be. We thought we did at the start of this year, at the start of 2020, we thought we knew what 2020 was going to be. Well, this has shown us that we haven't got a clue. <laughs> what, what's going to happen? And, and before Corona, we still don't, didn't know what's going to happen because we, we never know. No. You know, we, we can assume everything's going to be all right, stock market's going to be like this, and, and it crashes. We can think something's going to be terrible and something different happens. So I think one of the things that mindfulness does is it, it teaches us to not make assumptions about the future. Now, it doesn't mean don't plan and prepare for the future, but we don't take an assumption about the future as a fact because life teaches us in all sorts of ways that we never know what's going to happen. But coming back to what we were talking before about adversity, in a mindful way, turn towards adversity, look at it, learn from it, learn to work with it better, grow through adversity, then we'll be improved by the situation. If we numb ourselves, rake and rail and start fighting each other and, you know, wrestling over toilet rolls and, you know, all that sort of stuff, we'll come out at the other end of this in a very bad way not just individually, but socially and collectively. Yeah. So this is a really good time to show respect for others, a good time for consideration of others, because that's what's going to get a community collectively through this, mm-hmm. is to really think and feel as one. We're a community facing this, being considerate for others, being compassionate, being thoughtful, being generous, though there's a part of us that wants to be selfish and grab stuff for ourselves. This is a really good time for generosity because that can be contagious. And if yeah. that's contagious, 
um, then we're going to paradoxically, I think, be far better than we were when we came into this situation. This has been perhaps a potentially a really good collective wake-up call. Which is exactly what I was about to ask you, saying, you know, do you see this as potentially having a lot of positives in that way where it is putting the pause button on, it's making people have to confront themselves. I've I've seen it in a lot of people, even close to me, where it's making people grapple with their ego. I can't control this, you know, and imploding because they can't control it. But hopefully, as a society, it's going to make us strip everything back. I think it really is almost an equaliser. It's getting rid of a lot of, well, at the moment anyway, a lot of status sort of um, is irrelevant. It's about everyone's in this together, which hopefully the collective learning from that can be for us to all create more of that mindset and bring that into life once things do sort of normalise again. Yeah, so so many people are learning what's important in terms of managing your own mental and physical health, or learning what's important and not taking others for granted, the importance of connectedness and doing that the best way we can at the moment. But so many people are being innovative and creative. Okay, the job, the work, you know, is dried up in one way, but being incredibly innovative and saying, well, okay, well, let's accept the situation as it is. Now, acceptance doesn't mean apathy. They're two different things. Acceptance mm-hmm. just means, okay, this is what it is. Now look around, what's possible? So you see so many people being really creative, really innovative, and, uh, and are adapting very well to the situation. I think it's, it's really, and, you know, and it's, it's, it's fine to struggle and find these times difficult, but mm-hmm. to look around, to be inspired by, encouraged by, seeing people and what is it that they're doing? How is it that they're approaching that's helping them to cope with the situation? So it's always useful, I think, when we can, is to learn from people around us, both learn from things that don't work, but I think we need to give a bit of attention to the things that do work. And so there's, there's really a lot on offer at the moment and there's so much more being provided to help people and things like this today, for example, but, you know, many things besides and, and to really avail ourselves for that so that we come out the mm-hmm. other side better than we were when we came into it and i guess today's my example of you know trying to find positives in what's happening i've wanted to do a podcast i've talked about it for about three or four years and i've always had a reason not to do it because i was too busy with acting or with work stuff and whatever else and i thought well now i've got so many things stripped back i'm doing it right now and the technology's there to do it i can be having a conversation with you via zoom and you know you you can you can get this stuff done so just trying to find, okay, this is a positive in that way that now I've got the time to do something that I've wanted to do and I'm going to find a way to make it happen. You know, that's what we can try and do. Space that's appeared in the diary is space. We, we can either consume that space with worry and rumination and distraction or this space provides opportunity, which, you know, your example is a perfect example. Well, yeah. what is it? this is a good time to be creative and to do something useful. And hopefully yeah. more and more people, you know, will find that that is contagious. And I think that'll be yeah. a wonderful thing. Exactly. For sort of mindfulness time out to just go and work on yourself. I really hope so as well. So just a couple more questions. Um, expanding on, I guess, practical tips and sort of techniques people can do. I know for me, what I do every day, I practice transcendental meditation. So I try and I always do the morning one, try and do the afternoon one where it's 20 minutes of mantra-based meditation. More recently, I've actually gotten into 
like I was talking about before, the deep belly breathing and I'm finding that really helpful. I exercise every day. I'm actually running Instagram live workouts every morning at 8am where I'm trying to get a community training with me at the moment just because it's makes you feel good. Um, I write gratitude, I do gratitude journaling and, you know, amongst that just try to, I guess, be aware of where my mind's going and when it is going on a tangent, you know, stopping it. So that's for me. But, you know, what could we, what could people do? What are some simple things they could try and do that would be applicable to, you know, anyone if they're just exploring this area? Well, look, I think the the whole, you know, range of suggestions you just offered, uh, excellent suggestions. I think, you know, to extend perhaps a little bit um, is to realise that things like meditation is more than just sitting in the chair. So I spoke before about perception, about letting go or detachment, you know, about acceptance, about being in the present moment. So to actually see that these meditative practices are a training for our mind to engage with the world, but in a different way. So learn more about it and engage in a deeper level, you know, with these practices that is more than the sitting in the chair. Because when we're sitting in the chair, we're cultivating a way of being, we're cultivating a way of using the mind that we want to use in the rest of the day. I think this is a really good time too for people to get interested in some of the world's great wisdom traditions. You know, what are wise people um, of the past and of the modern day, you know, what have they got to say? How is it that they confront adversity? How they deal with stresses and, you know, uncomfortable emotions? You know, how do they learn about themselves? And so that would be, I think, a really good theme for many people to say, well, this is a really good time for self-reflection. I don't mean about self-flagellation and self-criticism. I'm, I'm just talking about a, a time to, to really learn to understand ourselves better. And you know, in ancient Delphi, um, in Greece, uh, you know, the, the Oracle of Delphi, and, but what was above uh, the entrance there was know thyself. And so this is a really good time for us to learn about ourselves individually but learn about ourselves collectively you know what are we a part of part of something bigger than ourselves because if our world Mm. closes down to sort of it's about me it's about me it's about me then the world's going to get to be a very very small place and it's going to be full of a lot of conflict and whereas if we expand our sense of self that okay well maybe it starts with me but wait a sec it's about everybody else as well it's about a sense of connectedness it's it's about a sense of oneness then our life and our way of being in the world um, changes quite profoundly. So I'd say that's one other thing is just to really see this as a time to explore a little bit of what, you know, the world great, world's great wisdom traditions of East and West, depending on what your, your culture is, what your, your tastes are and so on, but um, to really explore that. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and in the, what's, what would be the most simple thing to do when we do to stop a negative thought in its tracks? When, you know, an example right now, we're waking up, oh, my God, the same, um, you know, when's this going to end? When am I going to have my life back? I'm, you know, that overwhelming thing. How, what's something really simple we can do to stop that thought? Come to your senses. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll just unpack that come to your senses a little bit. But the senses are always the gateway back to the present moment. So you could be standing at your kitchen bench and you're making a cup of tea. You've got a tea bag and a teacup. And just the, while you're jiggling, all of a sudden your mind's thinking, oh, this, and it's thinking that. And you've gotten on a train of thought and you've wound up a million miles away. 
So the senses are always the gateway back to the present moment. All of a sudden, well, what do you, what a sec, <laughs> rumination. Yeah. Again. That's okay. Just come back to feeling the tea bag, feeling the teacup. You're washing the dishes. Mind wanders off into, oh, what about this? What about that? Wait a sec, just come back. The only thing now is this glass, this dish mop, just mm. feeling the water. You know, you're outside sitting there, ruminating on a chair. Oh, wait a sec. Here, sound of the birds, sound of a plane going over, the sound of whatever it might be. So the senses are always the gateway back to the present moment. So it turns off all this mental activity and helps us to engage with reality again. Because yeah. taking imagination for real, you know, like when you're talking about your example of catastrophizing about what are they going to say tomorrow and will I miss this job and what, you know, taking imagination to be real leaves us incredibly vulnerable. So coming yeah. back to reality through the senses is a really great way to come back to where we are and live a fuller life. And I love it because it's so simple. And it's like what you said before. I, I, I like, I love my meditation practice, but the thing that I do find with that is exactly what you said. It becomes sometimes a bit of a chore. It's for that set time. What if I don't do it? What if I miss it? What about the rest of the day? It's really only good if it, if that meditation practice is used to cultivate that mindset to be, you know, ultimately doing what you're talking about, being mindful in every situation. And it's like anything, it's practicing. If we do in that moment when we're having a cup of tea, we practice it. We are going to build a bit of a connection if we do it again later that day and do that the next day and the next day and keep doing that. It's eventually just going to become an automatic thing where we're just living more mindfully. Well, the brain wires itself for awareness. Yeah, yeah, forms forms that habit. Whatever we practice, we'll get good at. Yeah. Practice worry, we get good at it. Absolutely, and I, that's habit formation is really, in the work I do in the seminars I run, that's the biggest thing that I talk about just because I know from everything that I've experienced and been through, the things that have stuck for me have just been when it hasn't always been easy or pleasant. It's actually often quite difficult and hard and comes with discomfort. But I've got that understanding now. Anything now that I need to, that's important for me to to grow, I understand I've got to form a habit and I'll have that discipline that, yes, this is uncomfortable. Yes, I'm having to push myself to do it. But after you do it for enough time, you do build that connection where it becomes automatic. And you can, it's, it's, it's such a simple thing, but so it's life-changing. Like I can't stress it enough. Yeah, and if I could just um, add a little something, I hinted at it before, but I want to underline it a few times, is that when we start practicing being more aware, practicing some meditation, etc., trying to put into effect the things we've been talking about, we're likely to notice that the mind has a habit of distracting and worrying and talking to itself, and sometimes stress occurs and we feel anxious. And that if we notice those things, but in a very critical and judgmental way, we can actually take ourselves more and more into it. Mm, so mm. we're worrying about something, then we notice ourselves worrying, and now we've got another layer of thinking about why can't I stop worrying about this stuff? What's wrong with me? So I really want to encourage um, your viewers to consider that the, uh, there's a very important attitude, the attitudinal side of it, to, to notice these things, but notice it with a gentleness. Notice it while we're cultivating a kind of self-compassion, a kind of a self-kindness. There's the mind worrying. That's okay. That's mm -hmm. what the mind does. So if we can just learn to be gentle with those things, not critical of them, just gentle, but just gently come back, then those things will pass, come and go more and more easily. If we notice them, 
plus criticism, plus reacting, plus hating ourselves, because why can't I stop this? How I get rid of this anxious feeling, can't make it go away. Then all of a sudden we get more and more drawn into, caught up in the very thing that we're trying to get rid of. I love that. And I completely relate to it. That's a, yeah, really very well put. And I thank you for sharing that one. So the final, do a couple of just quick fire questions at the end, but the final one, what would you recommend? What are some good resources for people to go to? And more importantly, where can people go to learn about you, to find your books, to find all of the amazing work you do? I want, really want to be able to direct people. And we'll also, when this goes up, put that um, on the on the site and put some in, some links of where they can go to learn more about you. Well, firstly, there are hundreds of mindfulness apps around the world. Uh, one review of trying to rate which are the, the best of them. Headspace, the UK Headspace came out number one. Number two in the world was um, Smiling Mind. So it's a Melbourne wow. app and, um, uh, and it's a philanthropic group. So it's free, those two. But there are many other excellent mindfulness apps as well. So please, that, they can be very helpful. If you'd like to learn more about mindfulness, we um, have a free online course we developed at Monash University. And so it goes live three times a year. It's live just at the moment. I'm not sure when this will go, but it might be um, offline again, but it'll be going live again twice more this year. It's called Mindfulness for Wellbeing and Peak Performance. So that's on the FutureLearn platform. And so people can just Google FutureLearn Mindfulness. It'll come up. Um, so that's totally free to do that course and it'll walk you through over a, over a four-week period how to practice and apply these skills. Also, um, if anybody wanted to read any of my books that are on mindfulness, probably the one I'd recommend as the best overall book would be Mindfulness for Life. And, uh, and there's also another Know Thyself. Now, that was my first book on mindfulness, Know Thyself. But that's got, I suppose, plenty of the philosophical side of it the um the mindfulness for life has got various applications and a bit more of the science there as well um for people who want to sort of understand that a little bit more too so there Great. there are a few things i would recommend so there's plenty out there for people who are interested beautiful no thank you for that and yeah we'll put that um i'll put links up for all of that as well um so just to to finish up just a couple of really quick questions and just you know whatever comes to your head for these we're just finishing up every interview with a couple of the same sort of questions um so the first one is what's your best childhood memory oh, well it's a bit of a tough one well, I was going to say <laughs> I was going to say a really important moment in my life was when I was in my late teens and uh I didn't know what meditation was but I sat down to practice meditation for the first time, totally untaught. That little 20 minutes or however long it was changed my life. <laughs> I like that one. Let's go with that. <laughs> That's a very good one. What do you think is the biggest on mental health in society currently today? Uh, I would say that we're, we don't understand ourselves well. We're living in a very distracted, stressed world and we're losing touch with ourselves and therefore with each other. Beautiful. Um, what is your personal definition of happiness? Complete peace and oneness with yourself. Where do you see mental health in society in 10 years' time? In part tracking down, but a lot of good things happening. So I think we're going to come hopefully out of a, out of a dip that's been happening for a number of decades. So I think we're starting to move in the right direction, hopefully in the next 10 years. 
I agree. And final one, uh, what's the most courageous thing you have ever done? Uh, my biggest fear in life is public speaking. So taking up a career where every day you have to step into that thing that you fear the most, that certainly takes persistent <laughs> courage from myself and to learn to feel comfortable with discomfort. So. Well, that's pretty amazing. Pretty, pretty incredible that you've made a part of your career is doing the thing that uh, was your biggest fear. So I think that's a great way to finish up and a great message for everyone who is listening to this, that we can overcome anything, we can confront any obstacle, and there's so many positives to how we can look at any situation. Yeah, I found when, when I run from my fears, they get bigger and I get smaller. When I turn towards them, then they get smaller and I get bigger. That one, the second one seems to work better for me. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've found the exact same thing and the same for me with speaking. I used to literally vomit before I'd go up at university and speak in front of five people. And now that's been the, one of the biggest parts of my career, speaking in front of people. So, you know, it, you, we all can change and work on confronting our fear is the best way to, to move forward. So, yeah, thank you so much. I've taken a bit more of your time than I thought it would, but, I I mean, it's been amazing. It's always so great talking to you. I could talk to you for days about all of this, so I really appreciate you making the time to have a chat to me. Uh, thanks so much, Craig. And more power to the work that you're doing. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. This episode of Move Your Mind was produced and edited by Tim Boozer. would like to thank John Holland for proudly sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Craig said for joining me today on Move Your Mind. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Move Your Mind. We're going to be releasing new episodes every week, and we would love it if you could subscribe on your favorite platform, leave a comment, leave a star rating, recommend us to a friend, and help support us on this journey. Join me, Nick Brax, in Mental Health Masterclass, where you can access cinema-quality essential mental health education from world-leading experts anytime, anywhere. Each 12 to 15 minute module comes with comprehensive workbooks and a range of printable books with optional tasks, behavior change tools, information, and guidance to create healthy, preventative long-term habits. Go to courses.nickbrax.com to enroll, or simply go to nickbrax.com and click on the Mental Health Masterclass icon. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.